Welcome back to Plenary Session Podcast, and if you're watching on YouTube, welcome back to the channel. I'm back here to do another video, and this is about interpreting studies, because I think this is an important topic that we don't talk enough about. But first, I have to admit, I, like many other people, have been enjoying the summer, and I have been listening to a lot of podcasts, and I really got turned on to some legal podcasts. And if you check out the show VPZD with my co-host, Zubin Damania, we talked a little bit about these legal podcasts uh, in the last episode, which came out, I think, just this morning. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of fascinated by law, and I have a bunch of questions uh, uh, about the law. But one of the things that struck me on this podcast was I feel like there's a difference in the culture between academic law and academic medicine. Now, academic law, I think, incentivizes people and values clever ideas, clever people. I think that's the currency of the law. And when I listen to these podcasts thinking about how to interpret uh, the Constitution and how to talk about the Supreme Court and their legislation, um, you know, it's really about coming up with sort of a clever way to harmonize the law, to build upon existing arguments, to channel precedent, but uh, structure and text of the Constitution uh, into your views on it. And I think um, people may value the skill of being clever in constructing those arguments and putting them as succinctly as possible. And I started to think, is that true in academic medicine? Do we value cleverness in the same way? And I think it's actually very different because in academic medicine, there is this external gold standard, which is what biology dictates. You know, scientific experiments are either a true capitulation of biology or not. Uh, a clinical trial is either a truthful claim about whether or not doing that thing makes people better off or not. And we have this external referent that we can turn to, which is a very well-done experiment. And the thing about a well-done experiment is they typically are very, very simple. There's just one question we're asking, you know, does the addition of remdesivir to people who are hospitalized with COVID-19 improve outcomes? Does dexamethasone help people who are hospitalized with COVID-19? Um, you know, uh, can a COVID-19 vaccine uh, prevent the acquisition of symptomatic SARS-CoV-2? Uh, can taking a cancer drug improve my survival? It's a very simple question. One question, one study, at least that's the fundamental aim. And the thing is that, you know, different people can be clever in sort of um, so many parts of biomedicine, but when it comes to those like hard answers, it's not really about being super clever. It's about being a manager. I mean, you know, lots of people have the idea that taking two drugs that work in cancer and combining them, let's see if that's better than, you know, one drug followed by the other drug uh, in ice or, or one drug uh, in isolation. And um, it doesn't take a genius to think that these are sort of interesting questions to test. And then in academic medicine, we value, I think, the person who becomes the manager, or as my colleague puts it, sort of a CEO type. Um, whereas in the law, they value the clever person, we value the CEO type, the manager, the person who can get things done. Now that takes some skill, of course, it takes being motivated and energetic. Um, it also takes, I think, being deliberate and meticulous. And I think there's also a degree of apprenticeship who you happened to train under and obviously luck. Um, whereas cleverness, um, maybe it also has to do with luck and who you trained under. Um, but there is something I think about people that's intrinsically clever or not clever. And some people are more clever and, and sharp than others. Um, whereas I, I think that that might be less of the case when it comes, uh, well, I mean, I think it's just different traits. There are people who are better managers than others. Uh, they have maybe a cooler temper or better able to hold a team together. But I think managerial feels have always also uh, included, included some sort of negative personality types, such as the classic sociopathic, uh, CEO. The reason I say all this is because I think this is why the culture of ideas is a little bit different in these two fields. 
in uh, the law. They seem to take pleasure in people who come up with new ideas and push their ideas. And in medicine, I think they have a lot more difficulty with it. I think they struggle with it. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's very challenging for them to hear things that may be different to them because it's really sort of brought up in the, in the managerial spirit. And I say all that because I've been following the dialogue and we always get in the same sorts of pitfalls on clinical trials. Um, let's talk about randomized clinical trials in cancer medicine. Now, when you do a randomized clinical trial in cancer medicine, I think one thing people need to be aware of is that many of these trials, 80%, 90%, are actually funded by the biopharmaceutical industry. And either they are often seeking marketing authorization, you can have a a new drug marketing authorization the first time you ever bring a drug to market, or you can have a supplemental drug marketing authorization. You, br- you take a drug that's already on the market for one purpose and find another purpose, either in a different cancer or move it up in line of treatment. And many of the trials have those purposes. Some trials are merely meant to inform the standard of care, how we ought to practice, and they don't necessarily lead to marketing authorization, but they may try to cajole uh, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, which is a compendia. In other words, if they recommend something with a high rating, Medicare, by law, has to pay for it. And, you know, of course, they can't negotiate the price. That's kind of terrible system, but that's the system we have. So, of course, the industry is seeking to uh, amass market share. I mean, yes, they hope their products help people, but their primary goal is to amass market share. And it's easier to amass market share when you do studies that are slightly less than perfect. Pick control arms that are weaker. Um, test your drug early versus not giving it at all, even though giving it in the second line is the standard of care. Those are the kinds of games that repeatedly get played. Uh, why? Because they're trying to get the market share, because that's their incentive. So it's really up to academic oncologists to be clever and push back on these things, to recognize how they're being gamed. But of course, academic oncology is not selecting for cleverness. It's selecting for the managerial types. And thus, they're not very good at detecting these things, or they get angry when they hear these things because they don't believe that they can be a sucker. They don't believe they can be conned by these sorts of games. I just want to run through a few of the classic games um, in this space. One game. Uh, Well, before I get to that, the other thing I want to say is, and which market share do they crave? I mean, I think we would be uh, crazy to think that the pharmaceutical industry predominantly cares about the market share in low and middle income countries. They don't for the simple reason that it's a tiny fraction of their revenue. And that's not really where they're making their bucks. They're making their bucks predominantly on the back of the United States. And many of these studies um, are designed, at least in part, to seek U.S. regulatory approval. That's why they're always trying to recruit at least a few patients in the U.S. We saw recently with an antibody that came out of China that if you enroll no patients in the U.S., well, the FDA is finally cracking, the, cracking down on that. They historically have not cracked down on that. They also seek European medicines authorization. Um, in those cases, uh, they have slightly different structure because EMA is sometimes slightly different. But to be honest with you, that's not the bulk of the money. I mean, the bulk of the money is the United States. A little bit of money comes from Europe, typically Western Europe. And then they're not getting a ton of money from elsewhere in the globe. Um, and that's the reality. And so when they go to low and middle income country, countries, countries like India, Brazil, uh, countries like uh, uh, some of the, the f- furthest European countries, Turkey, um, even sometimes going into Asia, um, they are often going in running their trial, and the moment the trial ends, the citizens of that country that participated uh, don't really have access to that trial drug because they cannot afford that trial drug. And uh, I think that's a problem. I think it's exploitative to go and use a country just for your trial, and the moment you pull out, it's the last time they ever see venetoclax or benetuzumab or ibrutinib. I think that's a problem. It's an exploitative system. Um, and 
they're going to those countries in part because they can get away with a control arm that is beneath the U.S. standard of care. So let me just sort of talk a little bit broadly about sort of the things I worry about when I read a randomized control trial. The first thing I worry about, you know, what is the primary endpoint? Is this an underpowered phase two study or is this a phase three study? And underpowered phase two studies, they're not underpowered, they are phase two studies, but their primary endpoint is typically something like a response rate or a big change in PFS. Sometimes they tolerate alphas of 0.1 rather than 0.05. Um, and they are trying to make a very broad claim of, is there some hint of efficacy here that's worth pursuing? That's really their goal. Sometimes their secondary endpoints are things like overall survival, and sometimes by luck, but also maybe because it works, but sometimes by luck, they get a huge overall survival benefit. Now, if you do a phase two study with a very sort of small sample size meant to look at response rate, and you happen to fall into a really large OS benefit, you can try to trumpet that. And of course, the industry has every incentive to trumpet that. And the doctors, again, managerial types, not really clever people, because that's not what we're selecting for, to be honest, they don't really recognize that this can be a big problem. When you run a phase two study and you look at endpoints, not the primary endpoint and their big differences, those differences are often exaggerated, almost always exaggerated, and often also just totally due to chance. And we saw that with olaritumab or Lartruva. We saw that with this monoclonal antibody we combined with doxyrubicin and test against doxyrubicin, soft tissue sarcoma. We had a huge like 10, 12 month OS benefit in phase two, and it just absolutely evaporated in phase three. There's not a lick of difference. So the first thing I say is, you bring me some underpowered phase two study, you bring me some very small study, mostly run XUS, you bring me some study that was meant to look at one thing and now you find some sort of too good to be true OS benefit. And the same is true for whatever this uh, microtubule inhibitor in, uh, that they are testing in COVID-19, which they had previously tested in breast cancer. Uh, not too many drugs treat both the breast cancer and the COVID-19, by the way. Uh, if you bring me one of these studies, I'm gonna be very, very skeptical of it. And it turns out radiation therapy and oligometastatic radiation is mostly in this space. You need to do mega, or not mega, just regular old phase three studies. And in phase three study, you need to make overall survival your primary endpoint of your study. I think that's reasonable, especially for something like oligomets where PFS will be a distorted endpoint because you're literally, you may literally be radiating the target lesions. Um, uh, you need a better endpoint that's sort of more bias free and that will be OS. And then if you find a benefit, I'm much more likely to believe it. That's the first thing I look for. Second thing, does your drug have single agent activity? This is the one space that the, the do-gooders, the, uh, the drug repurposing people, and I think they do truly are do-gooders. They mean to do good in the world. They want to repurpose existing drugs. This is the space that they just have such a blind spot. It turns out that in metastatic cancer, there's not many things, in metastatic cancer, things that shrink tumor are the things that later have survival benefits. Just because you shrink tumor doesn't mean you make someone live longer, but if you can't even shrink that tumor, you're probably not doing much. And so when I read the plethora of studies on metformin and aspirin and changing to plant-based diet and meat-eating diet and this thing and that thing, I'm like, those things don't shrink tumors, okay? Those are latrals. Those are just the, this is the things that you think might help. They're probably not gonna do anything in a metastatic cancer space, drinking more coffee, uh, eating walnuts. There's a, I mean, there's a paper from Dana-Farber a few years ago that said walnuts, not, or no, they said tree nuts, not peanuts, <laughs> because it's a legume. <laughs> 
It's associated with improved outcomes, I think, in colorectal cancer. You know, these are pr these are drugs that don't shrink tumors. They don't shrink tumors in cell culture. They don't shrink tumors in people. And they're probably not making people live longer, live better. The reason in retrospective observational data sets you get excited is because there's confounding that people who are rich and in better health are eating all the tree nuts and the people who are poorer and in frailer health are not eating tree nuts or drinking coffee or taking metformin or taking a statin. Those are the kind of biases you see. So the drug repurposing people, I think, yeah, if you want to repurpose a taxane for a different cancer, if you want to go up against um, pemetrexid and mesothelioma with methotrexate, I think you're probably on, you might even be on to something because those are very active cancer drugs. But if you want to add statin to in mesothelioma, I'm pretty confident you're going to strike out. And we're we'll going to publish something on this pretty shortly. Drugs without single agent activity tend to be crappy. And even the new drugs without single agent activity, I really, really think you got to look under the hood. There's something else going on there often. And those are the kinds of biases such as censoring bias and other things like that. We published a lot of papers on that and we have some more to come. Okay. Does it have single agent activity? No, I'm not very excited. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't mean it's necessarily good, but you, you know, you, you're at least you, you got me, you got me, you got me reading. The next thing I look at, you're running a randomized control trial. Is the control arm what you would have done? Is the control arm what you would have done? I'm going to do a whole video on uh, venetoclax obinutuzumab versus chlorambucil obinutuzumab. And by the way, chlorambucil obinutuzumab is putting the caviar on a hot dog. Okay, it's a really odd combination, you got to admit. A very costly drug with a very cheap drug. And I asked the people, you know, how, and they're like, oh, it's a great trial. It's a great trial. It's a great trial. How often did you give that chlorambucil obinutuzumab? Well, I gave obinutuzumab. Yeah, but did you give chlorambucil obinutuzumab? Nobody wants to answer that little, tr that little tricky question. We're going to do a whole video. I'm going to blow that blow that whole field up because I think we got a lot of problems in that CLL space. But the point I want to say, the first point, is the control arm what you would have done? In the POLO study, would you have given somebody four months of fulfurinox therapy, see that they have stable disease or PR, and then say, you know what, I'm going to halt all therapy and just watch this person? No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You would have given two more months of oxaliplatin-containing regimens. Maybe you would have dropped the oxali then because you're worried about neuropathy, but you never would have dropped the 5-FU. This is pancreas cancer. What are we talking about? Would you have tested ibrutinib against chlorambucil? No, that was a terrible study. Nobody was giving single-agent chlorambucil in, in, in the country for which that study was designed. Psst, psst, the USA, they wanted the regulatory approval here. Nobody was doing single-agent chlorambucil. And if you can afford ibrutinib, you certainly can afford better than chlorambucil. It doesn't make sense. And whatever countries they randomize that uh, trial in, the moment they leave, it's going to be very difficult for them practically to get ibrutinib, a very costly drug. So it's really not helping anybody. It's really exploitative. It's really it's really a terrible moment in in global in in, in global healthcare that 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 we are really exploiting uh, our, our low and middle income nation partners uh, in this way. Uh, I don't think history will judge it well, and they won't judge anyone who's complicit in it well. Uh, control arm. I think I did a great video on agile. I call it great video. I enjoyed it. Maybe that's all I mean by that. Uh, agile, which was ivocidinib. Uh, uh, and now we wrote our letter to the editor in the New England Journal, and it was published, and the authors uh, danced around our question, dancing away from accepting the fact that they ran a pretty crappy study. And I've had some senior AML people email me to say that is pretty, pretty crappy. Um, Ivocidinib, Aza uh, <laughs> uh, versus Aza, uh, when the world has moved on to Minetoclax Aza, and when you're not doing post-progression Ivocidinib on the control arm, even though that's what we're already doing, that's pretty, pretty bad. Is the control arm what you would otherwise do? It's a simple thing. 
a trial really can't change your practice unless the control arm is what you do. If you are not doing that control arm, how can it change your practice? And then if you want to say, well, it affects the practice in the, some other nation, I would say, okay, but that doesn't change your practice. We're talking about you now, aren't we? Talking about you. It should be, is it changing your practice? You're the one citing it to me, saying it's important that I know about this for my practice, but I don't do that in my control arm, and I don't think you do either. And the truth is that many of the nations in which you think it will be changing the practice, it's not because they can't afford the new drug. Where, where are you living? They can't afford the new drug. And if they could, they wouldn't be giving that comparator as the, as the control arm. And that's because the price is horrific. The companies are making too much money in part to pay your consulting payment, which you're taking. You know, that's the part of the problem you don't see, but it is, it is. It's to take your consulting payment, which you seem to have no problem with. It's a little problematic. So... Control arm, is that what you would have done? The next issue, of course, is the issue of what is the, uh, the uh, I guess the primary endpoint is the next issue. Is the primary endpoint something that intrinsically matters to people? Living longer, living better. Sure, I like those primary endpoints. They have a lot of problems if you don't, if you have missing data. And by the way, missing data is something that the managerial CEO types don't think too much about, but the clever people types think a lot about because that's really important. But if the primary endpoint is something like progression-free survival, you need to check yourself. Your intuition about what progression-free survival is might be wrong. It's a time to event endpoint. It's the time until one of four things occur, whichever comes first. The patient dies, there are new lesions on the scan, the tumors that you measured at baseline grow 20%, or the tumors have shrunk and they grow 20% from the nadir. One of those four things, whichever one comes first. That's not intrinsically meaningful. Nobody's walking around 119%, I'm feeling good, and 121%, oh my God, I progressed. They don't feel that moment because it's an arbitrary moment. And if you want to know more about that, read the book Malignant. I'll tell you about the dinner party at Charles Mortel's house back in the day. So progression-free survival, I don't find that that interesting. And the companies know that I don't find it that interesting. That's why they're always saying uh, the extended follow-up confirms an OS benefit. We later looked at OS. They're trying to tell me what I want to know. They know I'm not going to be persuaded by PFS only, and I seldom am. And then somebody says, well, what about a very, very large PFS benefit? Yeah, okay, I mean, just like a drug that's very active. I'm more excited about that, but I still want to see the OS benefit. Now let's talk about OS benefit. You show me an OS benefit, but then suddenly, it's not just about what you did on the trial, it's about what you did after the trial. And if you randomize people to your new regiment versus you know some control regiment, but after they progressed, they got no further therapy, I think that's a problem. I think many years ago on this podcast, I think I did uh, one of those ribocyclib papers where you had hormone receptor positive frontline metastatic breast cancer patients and like 20 or 30% of them on the control arm when they progressed, they got like no further therapy. That's so, that's not what we do. We give it, there are many, many, many things we would give that person in this country. So if you have really, really bad post-protocol therapy, of course you bias your trial to favor whichever drug had a longer PFS because that literally means they were getting more of something. They were getting more of something rather than nothing. That's what you've biased it towards. So of course that arm is more likely to have an OS benefit, but that's not representative of the question in my practice, which is does this trial inform me and my practice and does it inform your practice? And if you, I mean, and I'm mostly talking to people who I think practice in the United States and Western Europe because those are the audience of this podcast. I happen to know that. It doesn't inform you. The post-protocol care has to be adequate. And they say, well, you know, it's not up to us. 
come on, who are you playing games with? The entire reason you're going to this global CRO to run the trial is so you can have the poor post-protocol care because it's a thumb on the scale. It helps you get your win. That's why you're doing it. And now you're saying it's not your fault. You have intentionally done that. Whether or not you want to admit it or not, that's the that's really the goal. You going to these countries so you can get away with the weak control arm and get away with bad post-protocol care. And you know that will stack the deck in the favor of you getting the OS. It's not that complicated, people. And, you know, it's hard to, um, it's hard to uh, show a man something that threatens his own paycheck or whatever that Upton Sinclair quote is. Uh, 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 it really is hard. So that's why they pay the consulting payments to, to get you to forget. Now, the other challenge in the crossover space is if your drug has already proven benefit in a ladder line and moving up front. Let's talk about Keynote, I think, 48. Let's Keynote 48, my favorite, head and a cancer. Pembro, cisplatin 5 fu Cetuxacisplatin 5 fu or the extreme regimen. Okay, when that trial was launched, the standard of care in the second line, at least shortly thereafter it was launched, if not at launch, but shortly thereafter and the company knew it was coming, was that pembrolizumab was the de facto second line choice and had in a cancer, it had a benefit over dealer's choice chemotherapy and we were all using it in that space. Now they're trying to move it front line. So if you progress on cetuximab, cisplatin, 5-FU, what should you get second line? What are you doing in your practice? You're giving pembrolizumab. Of course you are. Of course you're giving pembrolizumab. And what happens on that study? They don't get pembrolizumab in high numbers. What about Pacific? Dervalumab in stage 3B. What should happen in the control arm when you progress? You should get a checkpoint inhibitor. But what percent do? It's not so good. Go check it out. I think we'll publish our paper soon. I think it's in the 20%. It's very low. This is the game the companies are playing. They're not intentionally stopping somebody from prescribing it, but they're running their trial in settings where they know you're not going to get second line use of the product. So they're having their cake and eating it too. First, they get their product approved in the second line so they can start to rake in the dough, defeating some dealer's choice chemotherapy, which by the way, read the paper by Timothy Olivier, dealer's choice is not often dealer's choice. There's a restricted choice. You know, it's a it's a curtailed choice. I want an unfettered choice. I want an unrestricted choice. Um, but it's a, it's a controlled choice. And then once they get that approval, they want to march it up front to get that frontline market share, which is much, much bigger. It's not just longer. It's actually bigger because of the property of attrition that happens with lines of therapy and cancer. And then the thing that puts the thumb on the scale is to have bad crossover. Here now you need crossover. To have bad crossover means you favor moving it up front. And of course, that's natural that they would do that. And then of course, the apologists for the companies would say there are many reasons why we couldn't have given crossover, but there's nothing that stops the company from giving the drug. And this is why the Shine study was so bad. The, comp the investigators have the power. They are the only people who are controlling access from the company to the patient. And they can say, you want me to do IBR versus BR? Then promise me when my patient on BR progresses, you'll give me I. Promise me that. And of course, they can do it if they want it, if they wanted to push back. But again, they're not pushing back in part because they're the managerial types. They're not the creative types. They're not the critical thinking types. We're not rewarding that. We're, we're, we're sort of beating that out of the field. And then the other reason, I mean, the other reason is they just don't know. And the other reason is they don't think they're as powerful as they are. They've controlled the gatekeepers on the patients. And then the other reason is the consulting payments make people forget about it. Make people look the other way or see things in rose-tinted lenses. And I think that's the structural problem there. Now, of course, some trials are superiority, some are non-inferiority. If they're non-inferiority, they have a whole bunch of other problems. The margin is really big. You can park a school bus in them. In a non-inferiority study, the more deviations you have from per, from protocol in the control arm, you actually favor an in a, a favor a more marginal or ineffective product. So you run a non-inferiority trial, you want to dose-reduce the control arm. I guess to some degree, you want to do that in a superiority trial too. That's another problem. 
You look at uh, Atezo Bev Serafinib versus Serafinib Placebo, Sharp versus uh, Imbrave 150. Uh, look at the amount of time someone's taking Serafinib, and we published this paper. Um, the Serafinib goes from 5.5 months to like 3 point some months. The trial is 10 years in the future, and we're giving Serafinib for much less time, and less time on drug is less benefit, I think. Why is that happening? It's happening because the initial trial has an incentive to push the study drug, and subsequent trials have incentive to hamper the control arm or distort the control arm. And you see that over and over again in cancer medicine. What else? I mean, I think those are some of the biggest things. There's so many other things. Um, other things include, I guess I shouldn't say just yet. Our paper, I think, is coming in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation. We'll come back and talk about it more. Um, uh, things that are other sort of biases, censoring. We'll talk about censoring. When you look at a randomized controlled trial, there are some people who enrolled in the last few months. There's some people who dropped out. The entire Kaplan-Meier plot takes the data you have available for all the people in whom you have follow-up and assumes that the people in whom you've lost follow-up would have had the same course on average had they been followed that long. But that's an assumption called uninformative censoring, that the people who are censored are no healthier, wealthier, or wise than those in whom you have follow-up. But that assumption is often violated. One way it's violated, you randomize people to new sexy drug or old crappy unethical control arm, like vision. Vision is a great example of this. And then boom, 50% of people in control arms are dropping out. Boom, 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 they're dropping out, dropping out. The people who are dropping out are not equally healthy, wealthy, and wise as those who re are retained. They're the people who are socioeconomically connected, are better resources, more likely to know uh, the system and game the system and know they're getting a raw deal and drop out than the people who are retained. And the moment that happens is very likely those people who are dropping out had more favorable biology, I think, and more favorable socioeconomic circumstances, I think, and thus by virtue of them dropping out, that arm is doing worse than what would have happened had they been included. And by that, the experimental arm was already favorited from the outset. And I think that's why the trial for Quasartinib, the original Quasar, I think is a Quasar 3, the trial in the relapse refractory setting that went to the ODAC, uh, didn't get approval because they had too much attrition in the control arm and that creates this huge bias. It cannot be corrected for after the fact. It cannot be corrected for after the fact. You cannot model your way out of this. I know people like to model now. You can't model your way out of this. That's a problem. You know, that's a problem. Um, the other problem that happens is you randomize people to a, a decent standard of care and the intervention arm, and your intervention arm is super toxic. And again, here, the super toxic intervention arm will knock some people out. They'll be censored. But who will these people be? Will they be the wealthiest people getting knocked out by the toxic drug? No, they'll be the frailest people. So here you're knocking out frail people from your experimental arm, which is also stacking the deck in favor of the experimental arm because the sturdier people who remained in the experimental arm their average is being extrapolated to the frail people, but it's not. The frail people, we're going to drag that down. And I think that's what happened in Bolero, and I wrote that paper with uh, Usama Bilal in uh, the European Journal of Cancer where we modeled this. This was maybe four or five years ago. And then, uh, and then we've proven this with Kate Rosen in a paper in the European Journal of Cancer where we have uh, basically looked broadly across all Lancet Oncology papers and, mo and looked at the rates of censoring. Censoring is a huge problem. It's a huge problem, it's an, it's, and it's a problem that's more pertinent to time-to-event endpoints that require follow-up than time-to-event endpoints that can be ascertained at a distance, like survival. It's more pertinent to quality of life and progression-free survival than it is to overall survival. Now, shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about cost-effectiveness analyses. Let's talk about let's talk about papers in general. I mean, in the law, 
as I talked about, and I listen to these podcasts, it really does. They really cherish people who are creating, even when the people are like coming up with arguments to blow holes in their own argument. I think there's sort of a respect in the law saying, yeah, I respect that guy. He's across the aisle from me. You know, Neil Cacho respects Paul DiClement, but he's clever. He's clever. And I'm sure it's true vice versa. You know, they respect each other, even though they're fundamentally on the opposite sides of issues. In medicine, because we're not actually selecting for and rewarding that rewarding sort of apprenticeship, loyalty, and managerial types, we don't cherish people pointing out that these are the sort of core structural problems. But we make things worse. I mean, we still, the reason I think it's problematic is we still do think of what we do as a type of scholarship and people are getting promoted. And just as you can be a law professor, you can be a professor of medicine, but they're increasingly different things because a law professor may be promoted based on being clever and the professor of medicine is being promoted, I think, being a managerial type. And one of the problems of being a managerial type is that they have now started to outsource the scholarship. They're using medical writers, so many medical writers. They got a medical writer, next will be a medical thinker doing the thinking for you. What are you doing? What is the scholarship you're doing? Writing is thinking, so I think that's a big problem. Writing is thinking. When you see the medical writer, you, re you see a paper paper says something like, our new drug combination was no better than serafinib in OS and the toxicity is way worse. It might be a therapeutic option, but more trials are needed. That's garbage. It's not might be a therapeutic option, more trials are needed. It says your trial failed. We failed to demonstrate the superiority. It's back to the drawing board. That's what your, that's what your conclusion should say. But it's not. Why? Because you got a medical writer writing it and that person works for the company. And similarly, there's so many companies that are funding third parties to do pretty much bullshit cost-effectiveness analyses and real academic authors are putting their name on it. If you put your name on a bullshit cost-effectiveness analysis, don't tweet it. I mean, why are you tweeting it? Why do you want me to see it? Of course, the first thing I'm going to do is look at the methods and see they're often rather very sophisticated uh, inverted partition survival function analysis. That's pretty sophisticated methods. How did this uh, MD who apprenticed in the clinical trials business learn all that? And then looking at all the types of imputation they've done and all of the Markov modeling they've done, often quite sophisticated. But then I know I have my doubts that they actually were able to do that. I look at the author list. It's always like academic author, academic author, company person, company person, company person, company person, consultant, company person, consultant, company person, academic author, academic author. Doesn't that look rather, doesn't that stink to you? Like that all these people in the middle actually did it and then these people on the end were just, you know, being gifted the authorship. Doesn't that stink to you that way? I mean, that's really obviously what's going on. You don't know those methods. You don't do those methods. You're not familiar with those methods. It's written in a rather sophisticated way, and everyone in the middle is familiar with those methods, and you're not. And then it says in their disclosure, this study was paid for by the sponsor, in which case I don't need to read the conclusion. It says, we found that even though this is expensive, it's a cost-effective strategy, you know? And then you're tweeting it. That means you're proud of it. Why are you proud of that? You didn't do anything. I mean, maybe you edited the manuscript, but I really sincerely doubt you did more than that. And I think that is to some degree a type of academic fraud. I mean, you know, I mean, if somebody plagiarized a paper in a class, they'll be expelled from the school. I'm not sure we should get to that. I think there's more sensible reforms, but one thing should be to create a norm where, you know, putting your name on a paper that you just don't know anything about um, is bad. And the bigger proof of that is on another podcast, I was listening to two people debate some controversial new trial. And one of those people is a PI of this, is, is a study site PI. And in the course of that debate, one person said, what about those early stage patients on the trial? And this person who is a study site PI and an author of the manuscript said there were no early stage patients. It actually, you look at table one, they're like 10% of the population. Oh, let me refresh my memory. 
They don't even know. They don't even know what's on this stuff. They don't even know what's on it. And how could that happen? Because the CEO type often doesn't know the inner workings of everybody in the operation. And this study site PI doesn't know the inner workings. But that's fundamentally, a, you know, I mean, one, it's just a terrible problem. It looks terrible. I mean, even if you didn't know the trial backwards and forwards, if you agree to go on a podcast to debate it, I would imagine you'd at least read it in detail. It also speaks to the fact that often the critics are more poised to comment about the study than the PI because the critic might be somebody who is in the critical thinking genre of the scholarship space, and they actually understand those things, whereas this person is a managerial type, and managerial types are often, you know, uh, good at lots of things. I mean, it's not easy to manage a team and get something done, you know, get the assembly, get the belt to go, but they're often not the most sharpest people in thinking about sort of some of the core structural failings along the way. So, you know, I think these are the biggest challenges in oncology, evidence generation. It's very, very weak. Um, it's very weak because one entity has a huge financial stake at getting a certain outcome. And I think they have, over the last 30 years, created a system in which everything is favorable to them, from the regulators to the journals to the peer reviewers, and even the other academics, because they have incentivized the creation of mini, and they're not really CEOs because they are in the grand scheme of things. I mean, the real heads are the CEOs of the major pharmaceutical firms. And I would say an academic trialist is like, I don't know, a, I mean, a, a vice president at a pharmaceutical company of which there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of vice presidents. And I don't, I mean, you can say that that's a flippant way to think about it, but it's not because in fact, when they move over to the academic company, they often move as vice president. I mean, that's the position they come in. You know, the big, the giants, maybe like a Baselga moves as an EVP, an executive vice president, um, but most people are moving in as a, as a VP or even a medical director, you know? And so in the system, they are a small part of the system. They're not the top of the system. Um, and uh, and, uh, and uh, they're not being incentivized for being uh, reflective and thinking about the task. And, and the job itself keeps them so busy that maybe they don't have time to reflect and they haven't really thought it through. But I, I think that, you know, all that is understandable. But when somebody like, is articulating to you like what is the issue you know and you still don't want to learn about it or you still sort of reflexively get in your defensive crouch um you know i think that's the problem and i think uh you know if let me put it this way everybody i've ever known in my life who've written a book i have bought that book and read it if i've known them personally and i gobbled it up you know because i know them and similarly almost every book that is of prominence in my space of oncology, I'm gonna gobble it up. I'm gonna read, you know, The Emperor of All Maladies and uh, the, the story of Henry Kaplan, and I'm gonna read uh, uh, Commotion in Our Blood, and I, I'm gonna read uh, 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 that Sechorus's book, and I'm gonna read this book. I'm gonna read all these books. And, you know, I may not like them all, uh, but I'm gonna read them because they're in my space. And it puzzles me that somebody wouldn't wanna read what I think is probably a very important book if you wanna think about this health policy space and argue about it, which is malignant even if you would disagree with everything in Malignant, at least you would understand the contours of the argument. And it is abundantly clear to me that many people who disagree, you know, haven't read the book and uh, they don't seem inclined to read the book. And I think in part because the CEO types don't often read. You know, reading is not their strong suit, but the critical thinking types often do. So this is, I think, the gist of what I wanted to argue. I wanted to argue that I think, um, and I think this is actually related to a lot of things. It's related to like why we have so many bad oncology type uh, oncology trials. It's also related to why there's con there will be an exodus to the industry. And it's just going to get worse and worse. Um, it's going to get a lot worse uh, because we are creating people. We're training people to be good in the industry. We're not training people to be good critical thinkers. 
Um, I, I think it's just going to keep getting worse. We're just going to keep hemorrhaging more people to pharma. Um, I think it is a fundamental difference between the law uh, and law professors and medical professors. Law professors write their own articles and medical professors get medical writers to do it. And one is more like a critical thinker who's being rewarded for being clever. And you can give props to the person you disagree with who's also very clever. And we are like CEOs rubber stamping things that often have real deep flaws and being unwilling to consider that our point of view may be incorrect. So that's it. Those are my thoughts on um, some of the key problems in, uh, at least in cancer clinical studies. I'm happy to talk about observational studies at a, at a different time. They have even more problems. I mean, it's so, so many problems, especially when you're talking about causal inference of therapies. Um, and I think that's also one of the core structural reasons why we, we don't have more of a push uh, in oncology for reform. So plenary session, I got a lot of good content for you. I'm going to hit venetoclax obinutuzumab uh, soon. Uh, uh, and the control arm of chlorambucil obinutuzumab, that's the, the caviar on the hot dog rather than a cheeseburger, you know? Because you really want to wed the most expensive drug with the most cheap drug that nobody really uses, and, and the combo that nobody really giving. That's, yeah, a really interesting study. We're going to talk about that. Um, there's some other papers I was going to talk about. Somebody wants me to talk about this HCC study, but what am I going to say? I mean, medical writer spin language. I can be angry about it too. I've been angry about it on many times. Uh, you know, not good. I think maybe we'll come back to that um, uh, enzalutamide and precancer. Yeah, that's another game. You know, uh, going early, treating often, treating indefinitely. These are the games of how you expand market share. Of course, the company's going to do that. It's up to us to be critical of it. Uh, of course, they're going to play that game. And, um, uh, you know, and you're talking about incentives. I do think people who work in the Kaiser Permanente system are incentivized differently. They don't have as much skin in the game. They're prohibited from taking money from pharmaceutical companies, and they are among the people on social media who are the who get it. They get it as quick as possible because they're not being misincentivized. Um, it's silly to think that you're rising above incentives. You are succumbing to incentives. You just don't understand that. All right. Well, those are my thoughts. You know what to do. Um, I could talk more about all. I mean, there's nothing interesting in COVID. What is it? There's this Omicron booster. Check out VPZD. We talk about that. The kids' vaccine. We talk about that. I'm working on a really long article that's going to put a lot of things together there. Um, you know, we'll be back to those topics. Um, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. If you're on the audio feed, um, no slides this time. You got lucky. No slides this time. So you you got everything. You got everything out of this video. Except seeing my except, except seeing my face, which is what you could have gotten on the YouTube feed. Uh, I'm back for more plenary session um, in a couple months. I'm gonna sit down with Timothy Olivier and record the last episodes of the Malignant Book Club. You don't want to miss it. All right, until next time.